Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. A piece of string walks into a bar, and he says, I'll have a drink. The bartender says, I don't serve pieces of string. So uh, he goes outside, kind of tussles up his hair at the top of his string. He ties himself in a little knot like a bow tie and walks back in, and he says, I'll have a beer. And the bartender says, aren't you a piece of string? And he says, nope, I'm afraid not. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from skateboarding legend Tony Hawk that'll help break the ice. Indeed. We'll hear more from him later. Also, we get advice from Katie Royfe, author of the new book In Praise of Messiness. Plus, filmmaker Ben Zeitlin and music from Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Clashes have once again broken out across Egypt. The big deadline on the fiscal cliff. Palestinian leaders have won their right to change the way they're recognized at the United Nations. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Amber Bravo. She is deputy editor at the Fader Music and Culture magazine. Amber, what stories are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the science of Christmas music and what it does to your brain. The painful science. <laughs> Joyous Can science. Can you call torture science? Yeah. I mean, there must be some <laughs> science behind both. Let's hear it. So Victoria Williamson is a PhD who conducts research psychology at Goldsmiths University in London, and she describes a sort of U-shaped relationship between the amount of times we hear music that we like and our subsequent reaction to it. Basically, okay. whenever you hear Christmas music, you make a U-turn and get the hell out of the store. <laughs> What's the theory? Basically, it's like a peak. You start to hear it, and it, it raises you into this euphoria, and then you plummet quickly (laughs) into buyer's remorse, deep depression about your family relationships, (laughs) you know, whatever. As you hear Christmas music more, you tend to trough. You like it at first, and then you go down to the bottom of the U. Exactly. The U comes up at the end, so when does that happen? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. For some reason, I was imagining an inverted U. For me, the end of the U is actually on Christmas Eve. I, when I hear Silent Night, I have to admit, I get a little choked up. Get a up. little tear in your eye? Yeah, because that's nice. Yeah, I mean, back fond memories. It's true. This is what she uh, describes as the mere exposure effect. You hear the song, and it brings up all of these associations that you might have. Luckily, most of us have not heard Silent Night while getting beaten up or something like that. <laughs> So we have we tend to have good associations with it. Unless you went shopping on Black Friday. <laughs> and you got trampled. <laughs> yes. Amber Bravo, thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our slightly dry history lesson with booze. First, an appropriate history given our last conversation. Yeah. 28 years ago this week, the song Do They Know It's Christmas was recorded. Yeah, we don't know whether you're at the peak or the trough of the U when it comes to this <laughs> tune. Michelle Phillippe is here to tell you about it regardless. New Wave music was mainly known for flashy videos and enormous hair. But in 1984, Bob Geldof used it to fight hunger. It made sense. Bob fronted new wave band the Boomtown Rats. But he'd also been a social justice activist since he was a teen. So when he saw a news report about mass famine in Ethiopia, he and Midge Ewer of the band Ultravox figured they'd raise cash for the cause by putting out a song about it. It's Christmas time. 
no need to be afraid. Except two problems. If they performed the song, it'd look like they were exploiting famine for fame. And it probably wouldn't sell enough to feed a third world country. So Bob decided he'd just persuade dozens of the biggest pop stars in the world to perform the tune for them. For free. Bob claims it was kind of a breeze. He quickly got pals like Sting and Bono on board. Others just fell into his lap. Like Spandau Ballet's Gary Kemp, who he cornered in an antique store. The hard part was recording them all. They got free studio time for just one day. So on November 25th, Bob and Midge had to tape 40 megastar musicians and mix the song in 24 hours. The session engineer finally got a chance to hit the bathroom at hour 16. Not everyone wanted to sacrifice for the project. For instance, UK politicians. Though Bob had promised 100% of the record sales would go to famine relief, they insisted on collecting sales tax. So Bob relentlessly shamed them in the media, till they gave in and let the tax go to charity too. Geldof hoped Do They Know It's Christmas would raise a few hundred thousand bucks. It did, plus over 10 million bucks more. It was the fastest selling track in UK history, a million copies in its first week alone a record it held for 13 years. And it inspired the American charity tune, We Are the World. In 2010, Bob Geldof told London's Telegraph newspaper, quote, I am responsible for the two worst songs in history. Still a cheeky punk rocker at heart, that Bob Geldof. All right, so that is the history. Now for the drink to serve with it, we are speaking with Melanie Schmidt. She is a bartender at the British gastropub King's Row in Pasadena, California, because, of course, the song is British. Melanie, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? Uh, today I'm making the old brew. The old, the old brew, but it's inspired by a new way of song. I know. <laughs> All right. I designed a uh, cocktail in the old-fashioned style, mostly to bring together a whole list of ingredients because of all the musical artists that got together, I kind of wanted to follow in that pattern. How do we bring a bunch of things together and get them to work harmoniously? Ah, I see. So you're starting with the drink, the old-fashioned. In that same style. Okay. Of the old-fashioned and kind of an iced coffee. Going back to raising money for Ethiopia. Oh, right, they're, Ethiopian coffee. Yeah, their biggest export right now is coffee. So, all right, so you start with, with coffee? Yeah, it's called Fair Cafe, and it's a coffee liqueur, and it's really, really wonderfully made. There's a lot of care put into it. And it's made with fair trade ingredients? Yeah, it's called Fair Trade because it, it is a fair trade product. Perfect. Yeah, and then we're also using uh, Rittenhouse Rye, which is from Kentucky. Rye whiskey. Yep. And then we're going to use uh, Zaya rum, which is from Trinidad. And then we're also using Maletti, which is an Amaro from Italy. My God. Yeah, it's super, super delicious. And again, in the old-fashioned style, we're going to use some bitters from actually Los Angeles, Miracle Mile bitters. And they do this one that's toasted pecan. So it's super delicious. And, and a little Christmassy. Yeah, this drink can be served hot or cold. So if it's really cold outside and you're looking for something to kind of warm you up, you can do it in a hot toddy style. Wonderful. Is that it? And then it gets an orange twist on the top because Rittenhouse is 100 proof, super boozy, super strong. 100 proof. So so you get maybe not the pure glow of giving to charity, but a, a pleasant feeling nonetheless yes. after drinking this. Yes. <laughs> and Brendan, speaking of charitable glows, 
Mm-hmm. The guys at King's Row are donating a buck of every old brew they sell in December to the Wounded Warrior Project. All right. Isn't Very nice? cool. Yeah. So this song keeps generating generosity. Yeah. It almost makes you like Christmas music again. Almost. Yeah. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is legendary skateboarder Tony Hawk. He is not only one of the greatest skaters ever, but he's a founding father of the modern skate industry. A new documentary talks about his early career. Here's Tony with a list of films about others who push the limits. My name is Tony Hawk. I'm a professional skateboarder, and I am featured in the new documentary called Bones Brigade, an autobiography covers the team that I rode for in the 80s called the Bones Brigade, and it was probably the most influential team, really made the blueprint for modern skateboarding as it is. Here is my list of my three favorite action sports documentaries. I mean, really, be honest, every day I get up, I think today is the day I could die. Number one is the Matt Hoffman documentary called The Birth of Big Air. Matt Hoffman is the godfather of BMX stunt riding, the one that did the 900 first. I mean, he did a 900 on a bike before it even existed on a skateboard. A 900 is a two and a half spin in midair, and he's doing it with this giant contraption between his legs. That tells you a little bit about his psyche. I mean, since he sort of conquered BMX in a lot of ways, he got into skydiving. But what he wanted to do was, uh, there's this, in Mexico, there's what they call this devil's hole, and you can skydive into this cave. That wasn't enough for him. He wanted to use a military helicopter to hang a half pipe thousands of feet above that and ride his bike off the side of the half pipe and skydive his way into the hole. I mean, I hate using the term, but that is extreme. I do identify with that on a lot of levels. I didn't really care how I compared to all the other riders and the competitors. I just cared how I compared to myself the last time I skated and can I improve on that. And Matt has that, but he has it on a whole different scale of danger. It's amazing to watch, but I mean, at some point, he very, he very much toys with his mortality. Uh, number two, but number two documentary that symbolizes what I do, especially, is Dogtown Z Boys that Stacey Peralta directed. He directed our Bones Brigade documentary, which kind of is the continuation of where Z Boys left off. The Dogtown Z Boys crew were guys like Tony Alva, Jay Adams, Stacey Peralta. They very much shaped what modern skateboarding is. They're the ones who started skating the empty swimming pools. They're the ones who took skateboarding to its own sport. California's drought served as a midwife to the skateboard revolution, as hundreds of pools across the Los Angeles basin were left empty and unused. In a covert convergence, skaters would come from miles around to savor the fleeting, illicit thrills of skateboarding inside a recently discovered backyard pool. So when I came into skating, I literally saw guys flying up above empty swimming pools, and it's very much because of that group. And that's what made me fall in love with it. I, I said, I want to do that, I want to fly. All right, ready to skate? If I were to pick a third one, I think it's the first video that we did as a team called the Bones Brigade Video Show, because that was the first home video. The one that sparked the generations of skate videos, so to speak, and now YouTube videos. Yeah. 
Bones Brigade Video Show is basically the Bones Brigade in its very infancy. All those guys, just what they could do at that time. I think the video, they had hoped to sell 300. They sold 30,000. To a lot of people, that was their manifesto. People started dressing like this. People had my haircut. It got very surreal to us, and then we started focusing more on the videos. I was able to really shine in the videos because there were very difficult tricks that I would never have tried them in competition because I know there's just a slim chance I'll ever make it. When I did an Ollie McTwist, which is basically a, a 540 spin not using your hands, that was the ender of the video, that trick. And I remember when I landed it, finally, I thought, I never have to do that again. <laughs> I'm so excited. The guest list from skateboard legend Tony Hawk and Brendan Tony, of course, went on to land many more of those 520-degree spins, actually. That's right, and he performed the first 900-degree spin on skateboard, right? That is right. Speaking of which, Tony is just a little older than me. Uh-huh. He told me he landed a 900 last year, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, my knees hurt after a walk. Yeah. Well, are you, <laughs> you sure know? he didn't do that by accident while slipping in the shower? You know? <laughs> I don't. That would make me feel a lot better, though. Tony Hawk needs a clapper. <laughs> okay, people, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, bomb-throwing essayist Katie Royfe and later Ben Zeitlin, director of Beasts of the Southern Wild. When the Dinner Party Continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, author Susanna Moore transports us to wartime Berlin. And later, philosopher Aaron James has some questions about the ethels of the world. Why is the ethel deeply bothersome to us and frustrating to us? I can't say I ever wondered about that. But first, it's time for etiquette. Yes, each week you send us questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Katie Royfe. She is a professor of journalism at NYU, and she is the author of five books, the latest of which is called In Praise of Messy Lives. It's a collection of essays that first appeared in places like Slate, The New York Times, and The Daily Beast. And Katie, many of these essays, when they were first published, kind of cause to stir. Yeah, to be mild about it. And it's not hard to see why, because in many of these essays, you critique basically the way upper middle class people are living their lives, right? Uh, unfortunately, I think so. Um, somebody once called me an uncomfortableist. <laughs> that was an accurate definition. Somehow I'm drawn to subjects that make like all right thinking liberal people in entire mm. swaths of the country very angry. So that's my particular gift. It's in interesting. <laughs> Congrats. The uncomfortable, that's actually apt because most of the people you're taking on are people who are living comfortable lives. Yeah. And so yeah. the things you kind of critique are how people obsess mm -hmm. about food, the preoccupation with being healthy. I actually, I wrote these pieces over many years and it was only later that somebody pointed out that I was writing obsessively on one theme, which is this critique of our kind of bourgeois liberal idea and the kind of underlying conservatism. <clears throat> so we think that we're sort of evolved and tolerant, but there are all kinds of prejudices and kind of also sort of cautiousness that I wanted to just uncover a little bit in small ways. Like what? Like actually a little dirt is good for children because we're like hand sanitizing them so much and people not letting anyone wearing shoes into the house. Yeah, right. And, and I would like to point out a low point in my own mothering when I noticed my two-year-old child found a plastic spoon on the ground and was drinking out of a puddle. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I have this moment. So, you know, we live a messy life. But I, ha- I felt a little good about that. I was like, he's just working on his immune system. Yeah. But maybe maybe he was taking your essays a little too much to heart. He's like, screw I, the received power structure. He might have been. I'm eating my puddle soup. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, you obviously are comfortable maybe telling people how to behave. Yes. So how about you answer some of our listeners' etiquette questions? Uh, the first one comes from Kelly Lim. She writes from Singapore. Singapore. Yeah. You, you sound like Flavor Flav right there. <laughs> Kelly writes, when I passed on the beef entree at a recent dinner party, the guests next to me wanted to discuss my reasons for not eating meat. Is there a way to politely dismiss the, oh, you're a vegetarian conversation? I get tired of explaining why. And if one is a vegetarian, isn't it a little obvious by now why we don't eat meat? Mm. Um, I applaud you for not wanting to have that conversation because the really annoying thing about vegetarians, and many of my nearest and dearest are vegetarians, including my own nine-year-old, wow. is people who go to dinner parties and they're vegetarian and they really want everybody else to feel bad about their own debased choices in life. So I, I, But, you know, I hear this a lot. Like people say that vegetarians are so moralistic. I personally have never had a vegetarian just launch on some tirade. In fact, more often it's the other way. Right. It's not that they are moralistic. The problem is, I mean, kind of maybe the reason I'm not a vegetarian because I don't actually eat meat very often or like it. But I wouldn't declare myself a vegetarian because I just don't like the idea of going into a space and just sort of implicitly making people feel bad. I think a lot of vegetarians don't want to or try to make people feel bad. They just implicitly are. It's like when somebody doesn't drink. I once dated someone who didn't Mm. drink. Every time you had a glass of wine, it was like you yeah. were doing this horrible well, this, thing. I get this with I haven't had a television for a long time. And you cannot say that without people immediately thinking you're being an elitist or you're judging them. You're right, a snob. It's just I work in radio. And... <laughs> yeah, you don't believe in the visual image. That's right. That's why we're wearing blindfolds right now. So your advice to Kelly so, is the best you can do is, is say nothing. I, it is my advice. Kelly, keep your mouth shut. I applaud we your applaud gracefulness. You. Just eat your rutabagas. <laughs> All right. So we have another question. It comes from Mike Sykowski from Saginaw, Michigan. Mike writes, my mom taught me to always let a lady walk in front of you. But I have a conflict when it comes to opening doors for the lady. It requires you to walk ahead of them. Perhaps you can help me resolve this internal conflict, which has been a source of frustration in trying to be the gentleman I'd like to be. Nice. And he has an emoticon. <laughs> That's right. He has a little smiley, smiley face. face at the end of his sentence. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I, I'm not into the emoticon, but... <laughs> I myself would find it very odd if someone walked behind me. I grew up in New York. If someone was walking behind me, I think they're going to stab me. Look, I I don't find that very secure. Well, and hopefully he's demonstrated that he's not going to stab you in not the back. Stab you. He's going to protect you from attack from okay, behind. But when you're walking with someone, don't you want to talk to them? So like you want but them to be you next block, to you? Then you clog the sidewalk. I thought you're supposed to stand on the curbside so that the horse and carriage doesn't splatter right. the lady's yeah, dress. But There's the old-fashioned idea that the man is supposed yeah. to walk towards the curb. Yeah, but, but also... I also, they used to dump trash out of windows. And so I thought the man's supposed so to be, be on the, the other side. Yeah, either way, you're But either splattered. way, next to her. So you could protect her from any of these things mm. next to her. I'm saying and as the person walking behind you, I'm not happy. Because you're clogging the sidewalk. That If you're too abreast, is what you're saying. Oh. Two people next to each other. And that's not gentlemanly. <laughs> that's a sad emoticon. In so my you, you actually, when you're walking down the street with a date, you actually put her in front of you. I put her on you, my shoulders, actually. <laughs> you carry her. And gives her a gun so she can Come snipe on, any up. approaching... Attackers. I give think that two people do frequently, if we just looked out the window from this tower here in New York City, we would see many groups of two 
walking this. Our sidewalks are wide. Okay. Right. But, but what I about say the door? walk next to her and open the door. But oh. you can kind of reach and open the door when you're next to somebody. I don't think you have to be in front of them to do that. But I like someone opening a door for me. I think opening a door is good. All right. Okay. Um, you can also, right. by the way, if you're tall enough, you can sort of reach over if the person is in front of you and push the door open for them. That's kind of a nice move. Wow. That sounds cool. challenging and possibly perilous. But it also shows how tall and dominating you are. So that's pretty macho. It's true. All right. Here's here's another question from Rhea from Philadelphia. And I'm really glad to be asking this question. Rhea says, is it okay to talk in a movie theater making comments to the person one came with? Done. Yeah. No. There's a lot more to this question, but we don't need to read that, right? That just is the worst. No, she she yeah. does make a point. Go ahead. Rhea makes a no, point. No, I think she makes a point. Oh, well, okay. Here she, she goes. Keep going. She continues, the people who talk constantly are often the ones who also have the noisiest snacks and have to crinkle them loudly. But are the comments and crinkly snacks just part of the communal experience of watching a movie in a theater? To which I say, no. See, I agree. I think it's very rude to talk in a movie and to crinkle your snacks. Much more irritating than talking, Crunching popcorn. But I also think you could make the argument that telling people to shut up is also part of the communal movie theater (laughs) experience. So, like, maybe the real communal movie theater experience is, like, you tell them to shut up, they crinkle their snacks, they talk a lot. I'd pay 15 bucks for that. I don't think it's okay to talk in a movie theater. Like, we should just tolerate it. I think we should try to humiliate those people. I agree. I mean, there are some movies that you kind of want talking in, you know? Sure. Like I saw, I remember seeing years ago, Pootie Tang, the Chris Rock film, oh, yeah. like at a theater and the audience engagement was funnier. Than the movie. So sometimes it's okay. <laughs> sometimes it's okay. Only for Rocky Horror Picture Show and Pootie Tang. There you go. Everything else, <laughs> keep your mouth shut. Uh, Katie Royfe, thanks so much for helping us tell our audience how to behave. You're welcome anytime. Katie Royfe, author of the new collection of essays in praise of messy lives, is not a bio about the dinner party, honest. Yeah, but perhaps you or a loved one has a messy life or is at mm-hmm. least in a messy situation. Our guests are here to help for better or for worse. Send your questions to our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Or you can call our etiquette hotline, a.k.a. the phone at my cubicle. Mm. The number is 213-621-3554. eavesdrop. Award-winning author Susanna Moore is known for her sensual prose style. Her latest novel, her eighth, is called The Life of Objects. This week, we overhear her reading an excerpt about life during wartime. Hello, I'm Susanna Moore. I'm going to read from my new novel, The Life of Objects, which is set in Berlin during the Second World War. The first-person narrator is a young Irish girl named Beatrice, who has come to work for an aristocratic family called the Metzenbergs. Felix Metzenberg, the patriarch, has invited her to accompany him to Berlin, where he hopes to sell some paintings in the very flourishing art market, thanks to Nazi collectors. It takes place, this passage, in the fall of 1941. I was late for my rendezvous with Felix. As I hurried along... I noticed that the once-familiar Jewish shops and businesses had Aryan names. Although the passers-by behaved as if nothing in Berlin had changed, I saw several well-dressed women scavenging for food in trash bins and signs prohibiting Jews from buying newspapers or sitting in gardens after dark. Felix was waiting for me on the corner, smoking a cigarette as he glanced at the morning's paper. The train to Lowendorf would not leave for three hours, he said, and he wondered if I would mind if we had a late lunch 
at the Hotel Adlan, which was nearby. Herr Adlan rushed from the dining room when he saw Felix, guiding us smoothly past the crowd of men and women noisily waving cartons of cigarettes in the hope of obtaining a table or at least a room upstairs. Herr Adlan, smiling as if he had the pleasure of seeing me every afternoon and again in the evening, pulled out my chair. No morels today, Herr Metzenberg, he said mournfully as he lit Felix's cigarette. Felix ordered our lunch, caviar with toast, an omelette, endive salad, and champagne. I was unused to eating in restaurants, and I watched him closely. I was relieved to be wearing Countess Inez's gray suit and lavender gloves. I could see that people were looking at me, but only because I was with Felix. The other women in the room wore the new short skirts, some made from curtain material, with shoes cut from cork, People were staring at a small, dark-haired woman who sat with a man wearing a Nazi armband. She wore a tweed coat flecked with metallic thread and a beret stuck with several brooches. Felix noticed that I, too, was staring at her. Mademoiselle Chanel, he said, and her protector, Baron Van Dinklage. Felix caught the eye of the Baron, and they nodded to each other. I was shocked, having not yet understood that it was possible to make beautiful things even if you were corrupt. Van Dinklage lifted himself from his chair to greet two friends, men who, unlike the others, did not look as if they were on a stage. They didn't look as if they belonged there either, despite their natural air of privilege. Of course, it was these men who'd once had the dining room of the Adlon to themselves. Their tense grace barely concealed their rage. I soon found it difficult to look at people, fearful of what more I might see. Was the girl with the frowning Oberts lieutenant a collaborator? Did she hide Jews in her attic? Did the man in the chalk-striped suit use Polish slaves in his factories? Did that woman sell gold on the black market? Passports, art stolen from Jews? Felix had told me that in Hamburg the daily auctions of the confiscated possessions of Jewish citizens were so crowded that it was standing room only. No one was who he appeared to be. It was too dangerous to be yourself, unless you were one of them, and perhaps even then, even I was pretending to be someone else, at least for the afternoon. Award-winning author Susanna Moore, reading from her latest novel, The Life of Objects, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now, it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party-worthy topic by an expert. This week, the subject is a specific sort of disagreeable person that one might encounter at a dinner party. Our teacher is Aaron James. He holds a Ph.D. from Harvard and is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Irvine. And he has a new book out called Holes: A Theory. Now, Aaron, those at home just heard a beep when I said that. Okay. The word that that beep covered for those at home starts with an A, is slang for a body part, and is used to describe a certain type of person. I feel like if we keep saying the word throughout the interview, it might be annoying for listeners at home to keep getting the beep. Oh, okay. So I was thinking, it sounds kind of like the name Ethel. (laughs) (laughs) And could we maybe substitute the word Ethel? Throughout. 
Um, yeah. All right, because yeah. I, I wanted to originally substitute the word jerk. I was thinking, okay, no, we'll just, right. you, know, you can't do that. Yeah. But we can't use the word jerk because there's <laughs> no. a difference between yeah, jerks is. and ethels. <laughs> That's right. What is the difference between a jerk and an ethel? Okay, well, in general, the ethel is the guy who, and they're mainly men, who allows himself special advantages in cooperative life out of an entrenched sense of entitlement that immunizes him against the complaints of other people. He won't listen when people complain because he feels entitled to take the advantages he takes, you know, cutting in line or interrupting in a conversation. So a crucial part of this is the entrenched sense of entitlement. There's a, a moral sort of grounding to the Ethel's choices and attitudes and his basic way of being. Uh, the jerk, as I see it, is different because although the jerk might do similar kinds of things, also cut in line, also interrupt too frequently or be insensitive. They might just merely be insensitive, but not defend it from uh, an entrenched sense of entitlement in this way. Talk about some of the, the moral philosophy that is underneath this. I'm thinking you discuss Kant quite a bit. Well, I would say the big hero maybe is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who focuses a lot on ideas of moral kind of recognition of each other as equals. And our concern for whether we perceive each other as equals or recognize each other publicly as equals. Why is the ethyl deeply bothersome to us and frustrating to us? Say when an ethyl cuts in line, we might find this very upsetting, but the material cost to us might be very small and we might have to wait an extra minute in line, mm, right? Yeah. In the big scheme of things, that doesn't really matter. On the other hand, you might be really deeply bothered about this ethyl and how, why he thought he could just cut in line. And yeah. So then the philosophical question is, well, what... Is it of moral significance that we attach to that way of being or that form of conduct, given that it can't just be the small material cost imposed? Well, my suggestion is that we care a lot about being seen as equals, where that at the minimum means that people are willing to hear us out and listen to entertain our complaints. Your book does spend a little time explaining how we can manage ethyls because they can't be, they're incurable, according yes. to you. So how, can you give us some quickly some tips on how to manage the ethyls in our life? There's lots of different things you can do, but one of the basic things is just find alternative ways of recognizing yourself as an equal. So the thing that the ethyl deprives you of, moral recognition, you have to find a way of getting that without trying to get it from him necessarily. This is why we swear in the car, for example, when the ethyl cuts us off in traffic and we say, you know, ethyl uh, out loud, you know, <laughs> we say it out loud. There's no one else in the car. We know the ethyl yeah. can't hear us. Why yeah. do we say that out loud? Well, it's a bit like if you say oops, you know, trip on something, you say oops. Yeah. And you say that out loud, even if no one's around. That's a way of imaginatively presenting yourself to others. You're saying I exist here. Yeah, right. I'm to be recognized when you say ethyl out yeah. loud in the car, you're imagining that other people are watching the situation and agreeing with you that you deserve better treatment. You, you can see why the ethyl exists, though. Maybe it's proliferating. It's like all we can do is kind of ethyl somehow. That's so unsatisfying. Well, this is a deep feature of the human condition that we have to just accept human social life as like this. I mean, they are ethyls because it works for them, because they succeed in, you know, they don't push it too far, you know, so that cooperative people rally against them effectively. Um, but on the other hand, they take these special advantages and they make themselves feel comfortable about it. And, you know, there's some things we can do to mitigate this influence, but there's not that much we can do as a society. Um, they're sort of a fact of life. And so there's a deeper existential question about how we should feel about a human social conditions which ethels uh, flourish. Yeah. And how can we accept that? given that that seems unacceptable. Yeah, uh, that's what I feel. I want right. to rate let's I want to start a revolution against ethyl. So <laughs> right, but then if you think about what the ethyl revolution is going the anti-ethyl revolution looks like, you know, we become ethyls ourselves, you know, we've got to have this oh, anti-ethyl juggernaut. Uh, then ethyls are going to take over the operation and you know. <laughs> so. Yeah. Maybe I should just remain an occasional incorrigible jerk. 
Battle Ethel. Hold back. Yes. Right. Um, well, look, I appreciate you chatting with us. I hope you didn't think it was I was being a by making you say Ethel. No, not at all. Um, but I just thought Fine. it made the conversation a little bit better. Surprisingly easy, actually. That's a good good choice. Yeah. So we know what not what not to name our children. <laughs> yeah, all right. Sorry, Ethels of the world. I was just being a jerk. <laughs> So, Brendan, you guys may have just revolutionized censorship in American media. <laughs> Replacing dirty words with names, yeah. you mean? We can have so much more cussing on radio and network TV now. Thank you. That's right. Get ready to hear a lot more Mitches and Ethels. But, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Hip-hop radio is going to sound like Roll Call in Homeroom. It's going to be great. Yeah, in, in, in the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, coming up, we hear a song from Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. We get a primer on Sherry, and we speak with Ben Zeitlin, director of the hit Beasts of the Southern Wild. All that and more when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, a new track from the band Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Tao's band, apparently comprised of canines in need of training. <laughs> They're amazing yeah. to watch, though. <laughs> Also, you'll learn why your grandma was way ahead of the latest wine craze. But first, it's time to hear from our guest of honor. Yes, and we're very honored that it's filmmaker Ben Zeitlin. This week, the movie he co-wrote and directed called Beasts of the Southern Wild was nominated for a slew of Independent Spirit Awards. That is the indie film world's version of the Oscars. That's right. Instead of a cane, the statuette's holding a bass guitar. That is not true. Uh, the movie is up for Best Picture, Ben's up for Best Director, and his eight-year-old star, Quivenjane Wallace, is up for Best Female Lead. She is also widely expected to get an Oscar nomination. I spoke to Ben last summer when the movie opened in theaters just a few months after it had won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. And Ben, welcome. Thank you. Hi. This movie is not the standard narrative film that Sundance has been known for recently. I'm really curious to hear what you say when people ask you what it's about. <laughs> How do you, what's the elevator pitch? Um, I just tend to pitch a league of their own, actually. Um, <laughs> it's a baseball movie. <laughs> yeah, it's simpler. Uh, it's about a little girl named Hush Puppy who is living with her father in a town called The Bathtub, which has been cut off from the world by this giant water protection system. And it's about a series of environmental and also mythological catastrophes that come raining down on her and, and her world, and it's about her learning how to survive. Let's start with the mythological part of that. Okay. Your parents are both folklorists, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I imagine that you've sort of grown up with folklore stories. What elements of those did you maybe consciously or unconsciously choose to put into the movie? Um, you know, I think this film kind of started with very real, tangible things that are happening in South Louisiana, but I sort of approached the story more as a fable and wanting to tell a story that was about the emotion of the events, but not the events themselves. Stories like Huck Finn or like um, mm. Robin Hood or something that deal with the issues but aren't about, you know, dates and, and politicians and uh, whether or not you drive a Prius or something, something like that. It's much more of an emotional story. You know, I, I, I love the film and realized right away that it was operating on this kind of symbolic sort of folk world level. But I didn't think of Huck Finn. It's really true. Very much of the movie is spent with Hush Puppy on a raft with her father. Yeah, I mean, we, we always try to think, how would Hush Puppy see this? And how would she how would she make this movie? Like, what would be in her movie? And, you know, if Huck Finn were to make Huck Finn, how would he make it? And so we, we tried to very much kind of express uh, her through the way we made the film. And What's an example? Well, you know, like Huck Finn wouldn't shoot on a green screen. You know, he'd build the raft. <laughs> so that's what we did. You know, we built everything and, and we... 
went on the adventure that she goes on and shot on location and the deepest parts of the marsh and the swamp and tried to, to, to not really ever fake anything and always work with real parts and real animals and get dirty. I should say this movie is kind of a follow-up to a short film you made called Glory at Sea. You shot both of these movies in Louisiana, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. They pretty obviously take inspiration from the events of Hurricane Katrina. But you actually moved to New Orleans to make them. You were not a New Orleans native. Right, yeah. What about Katrina captured your attention so completely? I mean, you've dedicated now years of your life to exploring it. You know, it, it's not really Katrina specifically. You know, it's I really started this film after um, Gustav and Ike in 2008. And I really wanted to... Two other hurricanes. Sort of tell something about what it is to live somewhere that could be wiped off the face of the of the map at any moment, you know, a kind of hmm. constant state of hurricanes, of the oil spill, land erosion is related to it. And I'm just inspired by the kind of resilience and the survival mentality that you find in these places. And, and I wanted to make a film that, that celebrated that spirit. One day, the storm's going to blow, the ground's going to sink, and the water's going to rise up so high, there ain't going to be no bathtub. Just a whole bunch of water. But me and my daddy, we stay right here. We's who the earth is for. I know you went through a lot of auditions to find Quivenjane Wallace, who is amazing as Hush Puppy. How many kids did you look at? About 4,000. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, so what did she do that like stood out among 4,000 children? The most specific thing is that she defied me in the audition, <laughs> which was amazing. <laughs> um, and I was saying, telling her to throw this stuffed animal at the other actor, and she wouldn't do it. She kept on sort of pump faking and not, not going through with it. And then I had to cut the scene. I said, you know, why won't you, why won't you throw the animal at him? And she told me that's not right. <laughs> that's, it's not right to throw something at someone you don't know. And I remember how striking that was that she had this defiance at that age and also a sense of right and wrong. And to see that in, in such a small little person, yeah. it, it was almost alien. We, we never seen anything <laughs> like that before. Speaking of kids, you have said in interviews that almost any filmmaker will tell you not to make a movie with kids, <laughs> uh, water, or animals. And you made a movie with all three for your debut film. Which one of those was hardest for you to deal with? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're all, I, like, I don't really think of them as hard. They're all my favorite things in the <laughs> world. It's like, I just love boats and kids and animals. It's what I'd be doing uh, whether or not I was making movies. And so for me, it's mm-hmm. all part of the experience. The, the hardest thing is when you combine them all because you have three completely uncontrollable entities. And that, that becomes a difficult target. But, you know... It's not like a war story. It's 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 no, something no. that we set up for ourselves. We really want the films to be like an athletic event that you you know it's a challenge and you have to in the moment try to win the race. You know, which, which you never do, but you get close. What's the rationale behind that? <laughs> why um, why would you want it to be an athletic event? You, you know, you hope that this kind of physicality of making the film finds its way into this on screen. You know, it's it's a different kind of brushstroke. You know, it's I think we're used to seeing films that are all made with the same kind of brush and if you don't paint with a brush, you paint with an axe, you end up with a different kind of painting. You know, it's That's it, it, true. It's chunkier and it's messier and it has a different kind of texture and there are lots of holes in it, but uh, it has a different energy that, that ends up in the fabric. That's that's probably the creative motivation. And then there's just a life motivation of you wanting to just live these adventures with all the people that I care about who are all the people who work on the films. I'm going to make a big leap of faith and guess that you're a big fan of Werner Herzog. 
<laughs> yeah, he's definitely inspiration for sure. For those who don't know, Werner Herzog is known for you know punishing himself and his crew to the limits of human endurance and coming up with amazing films. We have two questions that we ask everyone who uh, comes on the show. The first one is: If we met you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Would I least like to be asked? Um, what was your budget? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it was small, although it doesn't look small in a lot of moments. Um, yeah, it, it was small. It just it just seems like the least interesting thing about uh, a piece of art is is the money. <laughs> yeah, good point. So we'll avoid that at all costs. Here's here's our second question. Kind of the converse. Tell us something we don't know. Huh. This can be about anything, about yourself or something about the world in general. <laughs> oh God. Um, so you know, it's a very narrowly focused question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, there's these strange uh, water insects in in New Orleans, and not in New Orleans, down the bayou. Like the the bayou has this crazy quality where almost every day there's a different plague of insects, you know, and they seem to live for one day, attack in whatever way that they do, and then they disappear. You never see them again. And one of the strangest ones is this type of insect that lives on the surface of the water. And if you scream, they get scared or they react and somehow, and so the water actually reacts to your voice uh, in this crazy way. And so uh, if you clap or make a loud noise, all the water around you will jump. Maybe if people go see the movie, they can try to find where where that happens. I know exactly the shot that you're talking about. And (laughs) I actually thought to myself, how did they do that? Yeah, that was something that we were doing a different scene on on that location. And uh, our hush puppy screamed and, and somebody was looking at the water and got freaked out. And then she screamed again. They saw it again. And we sort of realized this crazy phenomenon was happening. It's just something that you find. When you're far enough away from civilization where insects rule the earth, uh, you discover some pretty strange things. And Brendan, I want to say, Kuvengine Wallace is really a revelation in that movie. She's amazing. Mm. But I was sad that Dwight Henry, who plays her dad, wasn't nominated for a Spirit Award this week. The guy had never acted before, and he is totally amazing, I thought. So wait a second. The director shot with kids, animals, water, and he cast a first-timer as the adult lead. That's exactly right. (laughs) You think he also had guys just, you know, fire weapons at him while he was on set? Well, you know, you got to challenge yourself. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Enrico, this week we're actually going to talk about not food per se, but something that's served with food, sherry. Ah, although you often use sherry to cook food. Well, this is partly why we're talking about this, because that's cooking sherry, and it's what people usually think about when they think of this stuff. But lately, dry sherries, that is non-sweet sherries, have become the darlings of the wine world. Weird. So this week I spoke with Peter Leem. He's author of a new book on sherries. Uh, We met at Tinto Fino, an excellent Spanish wine shop in Manhattan that specializes in it. And my first question for Peter was, didn't this drink have its moment a few centuries ago? Oh, sherry goes back a long ways, certainly back to Elizabethan times. You know, it was known under the name of sack. Shakespeare is a huge fan. He mentions sack more than any other wine. The second would be Bordeaux, um, but it's a very, very distant second. You know, and of course, you know, sherry fell out of favor you know, at, at certain points in time. But sherry, I think, is experiencing a tremendous revival at the moment. So what, what's going on? In the wine world, people are always looking for something new. Uh, you know, sherry is hardly new. It's a wine that's hundreds of years old. But it's been out of favor for, for a long time. And 
the net result is that you, you have this tremendous array of high-quality wines, um, many of which are of tremendously old age, and they're available for extremely kind prices. And I think I really think that, that this issue of value has a lot to do with, you know, with sherry. It makes it a lot more accessible to people than wines from other wine regions of the world. So is it kind of like it's an old, neglected neighborhood and kind of the cool kids are moving in? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that that's, that's a perfect analogy. You get this beautiful old brownstone, you know, turn-of-the-century moldings and fixtures, and, and you, know, you get it for a fraction of the price that you would in, you know, in other neighborhoods. What is sherry? What differentiates it from a bottle of red wine? So sherry is a wine that comes from southern Spain, uh, from a very specific area in southern Spain, uh, um, around the town of Jerez, which is located all the way at, at the tip. Sherry is a white wine, essentially. It's, uh, there are three grapes uh, in the sherry region, but, the, but when, when we talk about dry sherries, uh, we're, we're talking about wine made from the Palomino grape. Well, I think a lot of people, when they think of sherry now, who aren't maybe keyed into the food world, think about their grandma sipping sherry in the kitchen. Where, where did that come from, and, and, and is that sweet sherry? Well, yeah, I think you know, there's, there's this, this conception of, of, of sherry as you know, being either for the elderly or for the British. You know? and, and when you, know, you see somebody like me, an Asian-American, you know, like 30-something, and it's, it's sort of completely far removed from kind of the stereotypical sherry consumer. In the past, I would say there was a lot more sherry produced that was sweetened. So that sort of developed in, into this idea of sherry as, as, you know, an afternoon drink, like a little cordial or, you know, like a little sweetened, you know, sweetened sherry for old ladies and, you know, this sort of thing. So let's, let's taste some. Let's, can you give me the overview of what we're about to do here? You can divide sherry into two basic styles. There is wine that is aged under floor, which is floor is a layer of yeast that lies on top of the wine in barrel. And there's wine that is not aged under floor. Wine that is aged under floor is called fino. And if it's not aged under floor, it's called Oloroso. So uh, here I have, um, I have a wine that's aged under floor called uh, Hidalgo La Gitana. It's a Manzanilla. You were opening that up as you were talking, and it smells <laughs> incredible. So let's begin. Mm. So this Manzanilla, La Gitana, I think is, a, is an extremely typical example of, of a modern-day Manzanilla. Um, it's light in body. It's refreshing. Um, you have this wonderful salinity that reminds you of the sea. Exactly, yeah. And so because of this, this is a fantastic wine to partner with all sorts of foods. Um, the classical, you know, classical pairings are like seafood and you know, shellfish, fish of all sorts. All right, let's taste another sherry. As you can see from this next wine, which is very, you know, very dark. This is an Oloroso from, uh, from a bodega called Gutierrez Colosia. One of the big differences here is that the, the first wine, you know, was aged under floor, which protects the wine from oxygen. This wine was not aged under floor, and so it aged oxidatively, and that con- contributes to, to its, you know, deep color as well. Kind of got like a sarsaparilla color. So what's the flavor profile of this? So in contrast to the first one, which was, which was light and brisk and saline, this one is is full and rich. You have these terrific aromas of caramel and and nuts and you know even like bitter chocolate. This spiciness that's imparted by by oak aging. You have this wonderful fragrance and a wonderful complexity of aroma on, on top of that. That's uh, that's really a hallmark of this style. All right, let's say some here. There's a caramel quality to that. Exactly. Yeah. You you see this. You see here. You see the effects of long aging in barrel. Caramel, toffee. All right, well, I'm going to take another sip of this just for kicks. 
um, the, the name Oloroso is, is derived from fragrance. You know, it's considered to be the, the most fragrant of styles. When you go to the region, you know, there, there, there are many people who will tell you these stories of these old aristocratic gentlemen who would walk through the bodegas and dip their pocket squares in a little bit of Oloroso and put it, you know, put it in their jacket so they could smell it for the rest of the day. <laughs> and, and so Oloroso has this, has this incredible fragrance. Talk a little bit about um, when, when do I deploy sherry? What meal before? Because it's a very strong wine. It is. It is. Uh, so a wine like this is 15% alcohol, which, um, you know, which sounds high in the context of, of table wine. Sounds high for one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but there are plenty of wines that are in the 14 to 15% you know, range. And that's, that's made sherry not so far away from table wines. You're trying to get America drunk, are you, Peter? Oh, uh, well, you know. <laughs> It's uh, <laughs> you always want to say that you know you, sh- you should you should drink in moderation, which is true. But uh, at one of my favorite sherry bars, the the owner Sandro always likes to say, "Drink sherry irresponsibly." <laughs> so, Brendan, I love the idea of old men dipping scarves <laughs> into sherry so they can enjoy the smell all day. I know it's amazing. Right? But don't you think that story's a little suspect, you know? It's like, what do you mean? Thomas, you smell like a bar. Oh, sweetheart, I was just enjoying the fragrance of Oloroso. Yeah. yeah. It has nothing to do with the fact that I, I spent the whole day drinking fortified wine. Yeah, I didn't spill wine all over myself. It's a charming was... tradition. <laughs> Folks, you can find out what we have been doing all day. Just follow us on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. That's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week, we talk to one of the most famous citizens of Portlandia, Fred Armisen. The most famous citizen of the dinner party is our assistant producer, Jackson Musker. Yes. Also upstanding are our interns, Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Chris Peters, Ali Lozoff, Peter Clowney, and Samsara Riley. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. It's from San Francisco band Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. They've been making indie pop for a few years now, and their new album is called We the Common. It comes out in February. Here's the first single. It's called Holy Roller. Bon appetit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening. Hey, man, sorry, but you've got something on your collar over there. What? Oh, this, I put that there. I like how it smells. It's nacho cheese. I find it refreshing. <laughs>